Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Continuing in Peter, I want us to look at a few things this morning, and I will forewarn you, we're going to do some sword drills this morning, so have that Bible ready in hand and buckle up. But the first thing... I want us to notice in our seven verses this morning is the number of references to stones. So if you look at verses 4 through 10 in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, there are a number of references to stones. And what kind of stones are we talking about? We're talking about living stones. Precious stones, cornerstones, stones that are chosen by God but rejected by men. Now, a stone that causes people to stumble and fall, I want you to think about that for a moment. Why would that be? Why would Peter have a special interest in the qualities of different types of stones. Well, what was Peter's name before he met Jesus? It was Simon. But Jesus was giving him a new name, Peter. And that's Petros in Greek, which means stone or rock. And let's look at that passage in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 40 through 42. Starting verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, We have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which translated then was Peter. Cephas is an Aramaic word, which means stone. And ironically, we have stones in the background this morning. But it means stone, and so as John explains, when translated from Aramaic into Greek, it becomes Petrus, or an English word for Peter. So from the time he met Jesus, his name was Simon Peter, or Simon the Rock. Okay. Now, the name which Jesus gave Simon was intended to indicate something about his character, And in fact, names in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, often have some sort of significance to that. And I'll give you a couple examples. In the creation story in Genesis chapter 3, we read this. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. Now the word Eve likely meant living. So... That's what Adam called her. And later in Genesis, we read of an encounter that the patriarch Jacob had with God, in which he literally wrestled 
with God. Yes, I'm not kidding. He actually wrestled with God. Look it up. It's there. Strange but true, but would you want to try that? Any of you in here want to wrestle with God? I would not. I think I'd rather wrestle with Dwayne Johnson or The Rock, as they call him in the WWE. I think I might have a better chance there. But you see, Jacob did. And God gave him a new name as a result, as well as a limp, by the way. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. See, in this case, the word Israel likely meant he struggled with God. And that was the significance of Jacob's new name. He was now Israel, the God wrestler. One more example. In the account of Jesus' birth, we read that an angel appeared to Joseph and instructed him concerning his wife Mary that she would give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. And so when Jesus gave Simon a new name, it wasn't random. It had significance. But the ironic thing about this name Peter is that Simon, at this time, for a long time afterward, was decidedly un-rock-like. What are the qualities we would associate someone with the name rock? Stability, perhaps? We would expect such a person to be solid. We would expect them to be dependable, firm, strong, reliable. But Peter was not any of those things. He was not stable. He was not solid or dependable. He was not reliable. On the contrary, he was a man of extremes. He was rash. He was impulsive, very much changeable. And that's a puzzle. Why would Jesus assign this name to a man whose character did not reflect the qualities which the name implied? Did he make a mistake? Now I'm going to give you several examples of this from Peter's life because it's important that we fully are convinced from this point. A well-known and tragic example of Peter's unsteady nature is his denial of Jesus. We know this from the story. In Mark's account of the Last Supper, we read this exchange in Mark 14. You will all fall away, Jesus told him. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even I have to die with you, 
I will never disown you. At this point, there is no question in Peter's mind concerning his devotion to Christ. He is absolutely certain. He is absolutely committed, even into death. Even if all fall away, even if everyone else sitting around this table abandons you, I will not. Now, I wonder how the others reacted to that declaration. And by the way, more emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Under no circumstances, Jesus, will my commitment falter. It is absolute. I wonder if that's how many of us approach our walk with Christ. It is absolute. We have full confidence that we would never, ever fall away. Never giving Jesus or God a reason to believe that we would do that. But you see, as the narrative continues, we see that Peter's resolve to stand by Jesus is weaker than he realized. And I think a lot of us in our own lives realize when that time comes, push and shove, we're a lot weaker than we think we are. Mark 14, 32 through 37. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to deeply be distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Will Peter die with Jesus? He can't even stay awake for one hour to keep watch. This doesn't bode well. What then will Peter do when Jesus is arrested? Going on, we read this. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. You see, the Gospel of John tells us that Peter was the disciple who drew his sword and attacked the high priest's servant. The, it was kind of a gutsy move on his part. John's Gospel also tells us that the mob included a detachment of soldiers. 
And so surrounded by a heavily armed mob, among whom is a significant number of highly trained soldiers, and even though the disciples are completely outnumbered here, he decides to go on the attack. And for a moment it seems as though his vow to die with Jesus would be fulfilled. But then almost immediately we read that everyone including Peter, deserted Jesus and fled. His courage lasted all of three verses. And then finally, Peter's shameful denial of Jesus in Mark chapter 14 later on. And after a little while, those standing near to Peter... Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed that second time. And then Peter remembered the word of Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. I do not know this man you are talking about. Let me ask you. Is this someone to whom you would give the name The Rock? No. But Jesus did. He gave him that name. And this is the key. Jesus gave Simon the name Peter the Rock, not because of what he already was, and not because of what he had done, but because of what Jesus intended to make him. He was going to make him solid. He was going to make him reliable. He was going to make him firm, courageous. And Simon was none of those things as we can so clearly see here in this story. But none of those things mattered because Jesus knew exactly what he was going to be. And Jesus intended to make him those things and give him the name Peter as a sign of that intention a sign of how he saw him. And here's the rest of the story. After Jesus' resurrection, after Peter received the Holy Spirit, he was a different person. He was transformed. He fully lived up to the name that Christ had given him. And on several occasions, he risked his life by openly defying the religious leaders and the Roman government. He didn't back down. He didn't turn his tail and run. He courageously continued speaking out for Christ. Nothing the authorities did to him deterred him in the least from testifying to the fact of the resurrection and calling on people to repent and place their faith in Christ. He was a rock, just as Jesus said he would be. Let's look at one example of this transformation from the early days of the church. Turn to Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We're going to go 1 through 20 here. I think it's better we hear it from the Lord's mouth than mine. Amen? Here's the example of the transformation. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. The priests and the captain of the temple guard... And the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. 
They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind for which we must be saved. And when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with him, there was nothing that they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further amongst the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him. You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. You see, the men whom Peter is standing up to had the power to throw them in jail. They had the power to put him to death. As they had done with Jesus only a few days earlier. But not only does Peter refuse to comply with their order to stop speaking about Jesus, he accuses them of opposing God and killing his Messiah. The Peter who dropped his sword and fled when Jesus was arrested is no more. He had been changed, much like us. When we come to know Christ, there has to be change. We are no longer that person who no longer knew Christ. And if there is no visible change amongst us, then do we truly have salvation? Do we truly know Christ the way Christ says we should know him? That's what's being questioned. All right. So we went through the rather lengthy overview of Peter's spiritual journey to make a point here this morning. And that is, when Jesus looked at Simon, he didn't just see what he was, an unstable, unreliable man. Instead, Jesus saw him 
for what he intended to make him. A man who had the courage to defy the religious leaders and Roman authorities. A man who testified to Christ. And a man who had the courage to risk his own life for that name of Christ. He saw not just Simon, but Simon Peter, the rock. And the application here is this. Jesus does not only see us as we are, he sees us as we can be. And even more than that, what we will be because he has committed to changing us. Christ has committed himself to us to see that change. But we consciously have to make that effort. We have to have that relationship to Christ. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? We stumble, don't we? But Christ is right there picking us up saying, that's okay because I know what I have intended for you. I know what I'm going to make you to be. Put your faith in me and trust in that process and knowing that life here on earth is not a sprint. But he intends to take us through life so that we can see the glory and the riches he has in store for us. And not only that, to share that with others, to share that love that Christ has for everyone who will come to know him. He's also changing us to be like himself. Changing our character to be like his. And progressively throughout our lives. And then completely and finally when he returns, he wants us. Listen to me. He wants you to see yourself in the same way. That's Christ's point. Not just as you are now in yourself. Not just what you have been but what you can be, what you will be, what you are becoming in him. Last week we talked about in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And in 1 John 3, 2, Dear friends, now we are the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What you are now may not be all that impressive. I think you're all impressive. You're sitting here on a Sunday when many choose not to be. That's impressive nowadays. But God is making you into an impressive person so that you can form from a spiritual point of view and, and perhaps you've made some mistakes, even some serious ones. Maybe you've squandered opportunities. You've, you've done these things and said things that you regret. And maybe you realize that even though if you've been a Christian for a number of years, there are aspects of your character that you aren't very proud of. These may be things in your life 
or in your mind, in your heart. The only you know about or that maybe your family knows about. But they're a part of you. A part of you that you would maybe rather not talk about. But God sees all of this. And he's not blind to any of it. The scriptures tells us about Jesus. Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all the people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knew what they were about. And he knows what's in you. He knows what's in me. And in Acts, we read that when the 11 apostles who remained after Jesus' resurrection needed to elect a replacement for Judas, and they prayed in this way. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. The Lord knows everyone's heart. God knows your heart and not just part of it. He knows all of it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. He knows your history. The things you're proud of and the things you still feel shame over. He knows exactly what you are. He has no illusions. But here's what matters. That's not all that he sees. He also sees what you can be, what you will be, what he intends to make you. Jesus was under no illusions about Simon's character when he gave him the name Peter. He knew that Peter wasn't stable. He knows that we are not stable. But he never gives up. He sees things that we can't see. Thank God for that. He sees the things what we can be, what we could be molded to be if we only put our trust and faith in him. I'd like to do a little experiment with you this morning. And I'll warn you, this may be challenging, but stick with me, okay? I want you in your own mind to think of that quality in yourself that you're the least proud of. Think of that quality in yourself that you're least proud of. Here's a few possibilities just to kind of prime the pump, as they say. Laziness, dishonesty, cowardice, impurity, anger, lack of self-control. You know your heart. You know your heart. You know your history. What is it about yourself that you are least proud of? And don't worry, I'm not asking you to write it down or even having to share it with us this morning. I certainly would not. Now, taking that, what is the positive opposite of that characteristic? What is the opposite of the thing that you're least proud of in yourself as far as your character goes? 
What is the opposite? What is that positive thing that goes with it? Think of a word. For example, the opposite of lazy would be hardworking, right? Or steadfast. The opposite of dishonest would be honest. Cowardice, it would be courage. And so on. Take a moment and do that for yourself. This is what God has asked us to do. Now that you've got that in your mind, now I want you to look down and imagine that word, that positive word on your hand. I want you to think of that positive word on your hand. Visualize it like this. And I'll use my own name so that no one thinks I'm picking on them. Steadfast one. Or patient one. Or honest one. And think of your name next to those words. And remember that name. Remember your name. Because that's what God sees when he looks at you. That's what God sees. He sees the positive in us. He sees what you can be and what you will be as you're transformed into the likeness of Christ. And just like God looked at man who was unstable, inconsistent, unreliable, and changeable, and named him Peter the Rock, and because that what he was saying and what he was going to make him by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to do the same for you. You may have noticed that we haven't yet cited our passage this morning, but we're going to do that now. But I wanted to develop this point first because it underlies what we're going to read in those seven verses. And let's read it again now. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says... See, I lay a stone in Zion, and chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So first... To tie this into what we've been saying, verses 4 and 5, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so we see that what Christ is, we are becoming as well. Christ is a living stone, and so we are also living stones. Let's look at what this passage tells us about Christ, and by implication here, what it says about us and what we are 
becoming. First, he is a living stone, living. So by virtue of his resurrection from the dead, and like him, we also have eternal life, and therefore also living stones. Just as in the Old Testament, the temple made of physical stones. That was the dwelling place of God. And now God is building us, his people, into a spiritual house in which he dwells. And the Apostle Paul writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And then later on, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. You see, the key here is the community aspect. We are fellow citizens, are we not? We are members of God's household. And yes, God the Holy Spirit lives in the heart of each and every individual believer. But he also lives in the church as a whole. God dwells amongst us. He is building us into a place for himself to live. So let me ask you, Stone David or Stone Lisa or Stone Jonathan or Stone Rebecca or Stone Andrew, or you can place your name there. What are you doing to make this church a place where God would want to live? What are we doing as a people, as a congregation, to make this a place where God wants to dwell? What are we doing? What are we doing to make this church a spiritual structure that God would want to reside in? And what are we doing to make it more attractive, more holy, more alive, more active, more peaceful, more loving, more joyful, more connected? What are we doing? Because we need to be helping making it something. Because we are a stone. We are a living stone in the spiritual building of this church. We are a part of this spiritual structure. And so what are we doing to make it a place where God is pleased to live? And what will you do to make this church a place where God is pleased to live? Extending the metaphor, Peter says that we are also priests. So not only are we the temple, the dwelling place of God, but we are also the priest ministering in that temple. In the Old Testament, only the priests could approach God to offer sacrifices, and, the only, and only the high priest, once a year, could enter the most holy place, the place of God's personal presence. But now, through Christ, each one of us has that direct access to God. Each one of us has the same privilege of approaching God that formerly only the priests were given. As Paul writes, in him and through him, faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So again, in the Old Testament, access to God was limited to a privileged few who were members of the priesthood. But now you are a priest, and we have greater access than any of them ever had. We have full and direct access to God through Christ. And as a priest, we also have the privilege and responsibility for interceding with God on behalf of others through prayer. That's our job. And more importantly, what an incredible privilege we have. But what of those who reject Christ? What about those who do not believe in Christ? For them, the story is a little different, isn't it? For them, he is not a precious stone. Nor is he the cornerstone of any spiritual building that they are a part of. Instead, he is an entirely different type of stone. A stone in their path. Over which they stumble and fall to their eternal ruin. Verses 7 and 8. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And... A stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So this is kind of a reference to Isaiah chapter 8. It says, The Lord God Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, and he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Two notes on this passage. First, it is a clear reference to the deity of Christ. And Isaiah, the stone that causes people to stumble and the rock that makes them fall is the Lord Almighty, as we see in verse 13. And while in First Peter, that stone is Jesus Christ. So essentially, Peter is equating Jesus with God, the Lord Almighty. But what this also tells us is that there is no neutral position in regards to Christ. There is no middle ground. He is not a stone by the side of the road that we can ignore or disregard. He is not even a stone in the middle of our path that we might have to walk around. Either he will be to you a precious stone, the cornerstone of all your life is built on, or he will be the stone that you trip and fall over. There are only two options. Receiving the message of the gospel in faith and obedience, or we reject it and we disobey that message with terrible and eternal consequences. As Peter stated so clearly in the passage from Acts that we read earlier, salvation is found 
in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind which we must be saved. And indeed, that simple, unequivocal declaration here, the, that only through faith in Christ can we be saved. It is a very great cause of offense. Stumbling and falling. If we were to testify that Jesus was a great man or a great teacher or testify that Jesus was even a prophet, we would cause little offense. If we claim divinity for Christ but not uniqueness, few would stumble. If we claim that faith in Christ was one way of salvation among many, our message would be willingly tolerated. But instead, we claim that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. And that salvation comes only through him. Amen. And that the offense of the gospel which causes many to stumble and fall. So in closing, let me ask you this this morning. What kind of stone is Jesus to you? What kind of stone is he to you? Is he a stumbling block? Is he a precious stone, a living stone? The cornerstone and foundation of your life? If so, then rejoice and give thanks. But if not, if Jesus is that different kind of stone, the stumbling block, a stone that you have so far rejected as the cornerstone of your life, then this morning we urge you to repent. Come to know him, not as the stumbling block, but as that living stone, the living stone in which we model ourselves after. Those who place their trust in him as their rock will never be ashamed before God because he has taken away all of their guilt. He nailed it to the cross. He took care of it. He destroyed it when he destroyed death. So this morning, will you trust him today? Will you trust in the message and the truth that God provides? And will we be a stone in that spiritual structure and make this place and everywhere we go a place where God would be happy to dwell? David's going to come and lead us in our benediction. And I pray that we continue as we go through the Christmas season, that we're looking for those opportunities that God will provide to show his love for others and to not worry about the hustle and bustle of the season. We need to be worrying about our relationship to him and the relationship of others to him as well. David. Two things before we sing. Number one, I'm... As a fellow member of this fellowship, I'm going to commit to the pastor and to you, my family, that I'm going to begin praying specifically to the Lord on what my role can be to even make this a greater fellowship that he would want to be with us even deeper. 
That's my commitment going into this week and beyond. And secondly, I just simply want to state that if you are here and you don't know Christ, please seek me out or Pastor Chris or one of our deacons. We would certainly enjoy sharing with you how you can come into a personal relationship with the one we call Emmanuel. Let's stand together. Emmanuel Father, as we leave here this morning, I pray that we open our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our ever being to accept those opportunities that you will place before us, and that you will be that living stone in our lives, that cornerstone that we model ourselves after. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that as we do that, it will be a witness to others so that they come to know you, so that they come to know why we celebrate this season. Thank you, Lord, for our time here today. Keep us safe as we leave to our various activities. And Lord, we love you and thank you so much for our blessings. And it's in your name we pray this morning. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.